Could you turn the lights up a little bit more? <laughs> My name is Tom. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Was I at that woman's meeting in Dana Point? I was thinking maybe if I was there, you would have stayed. <laughs> anyway, what are you doing now, John? <laughs> Heard tapes. Are we going to make a video of this, too? Anyway, I'd uh, like to uh, wish you all a good morning, and uh, I'd like to thank uh, Stan for the nice uh, invitation of coming here and telling my dreary story again. And uh, I... Uh, very nice of you to have me, uh, nice being had, I guess. I, uh, I'm going to do what I'm charged to do by uh, those of us in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is to tell a little bit about what I used to be like, what happened to me, and what I'm like now, and if you can get some good out of it, uh, fine. <laughs> I, uh, I do it uh, because I like to remember remember what I used to be like and what happened to me and what I'm like now. Interesting, I went to a movie. I've been sober a long, long time. And uh, one wouldn't think that you'd have drinking dreams, you know, and you'd have to get out of, which I had about a month ago. I had to get out of bed and try to remember whether it was really true or not. And it was very upsetting. I went to a movie a couple of weeks ago. And the dialogue, the guy says, well, uh, we can't talk here. Let's go across the street and... Uh, and uh, have a drink at the bar. And he went across the street. And the guy said, what do you want? He said, I'll have a cup of coffee. And the other fellow said, I'll have a double rye. And uh, was sitting there sipping it. And for some reason, <laughs> this horrible bar, the rye looked so good. And I thought, what is wrong with me? You know, I mean, it's just odd. You'd think my sponsor uh, tells me a lot of times, you know, as you're sober a long time, that alcoholism uh, is like a boogeyman. The alcohol and the drugs, they just, uh, they're always there waiting around the corner. You don't quite know where they are, you know, and you think you're fine and everything is great, and then all of a sudden uh, you're stuck, struck drunk or something like that, and it's uh, very upsetting. I've, the other side of that is I was glad that I've had those thoughts uh, periodically because I have to remember down deep inside of me, even though I've been sober a long time, is that... Uh, I'm one uh, drink away from a drunk, and I don't want to ever go back to this life that I'm going to tell you about, if I ever get around to telling it. Uh, like the speaker last night, Carl, I didn't start drinking until I was in grammar school. I didn't want to get in too soon. I want to be a little more reticent. And I came from a very sad, <clears throat> depressing family. My parents didn't even drink, which is kind of a sad story in itself. I mean, you people have your parents to blame for this thing. I've got myself only, which is kind of a sad commentary. Anyway, I just loved it. Uh, I used to steal drinks out of neighbors' houses and uh, steal bottles when I was just a kid. And uh, I don't remember whether they did anything for me or to me or whatever. I just know that I loved doing it, and I was obsessed with getting alcohol and drinking it. And I uh, did the normal things in West Los Angeles. I went to Santa Monica, uh, went to uh, St. Paul the Apostle Grammar School in Westwood. And uh, my sister was a very well-known movie actress in the late 30s and 40s. And uh, I was screwing around pretty badly in grammar school, I guess, and a lot of trouble. And they shipped me off to this rich man's reform school out in Long Island uh, to go to school. It's a military academy taught by the Christian brothers, no pun intended. And uh, I was... Uh, Hated it. I hated being in New York. I wanted to be home in Los Angeles, but uh, it was a wonderful time to be there, and I loved going into 
old places like Bop City and Birdland and seeing people like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Stan Getz when he was getting his start. And it was exciting and drinking this rye and ginger and uh, the lights and the, just the feeling and all of that. And it was wonderful. And uh, when I came back to Los Angeles to finish my last two years of high school at Loyola High School in Los Angeles, uh, I was a daily drinker. Uh, I was to be a daily drinker until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous at age 32. And what happened uh, in those years, it was a lot of fun drinking, a lot of great times, parties, football games, uh, occasions where you could drink. And my favorite thing to do is to be up with my friend John Savage up in uh, Beverly Hills in his home on Friday or Saturday night or both and just listening to some good jazz music. And uh, we'd steal a bottle of uh, bourbon or scotch from somebody and just sit there and listen to music and get blind drunk. And it was just heaven as far as I'm concerned. And uh, well, the other kids are out playing, or another friend of mine, uh, we sit around his house, all the guys would sit around on Sunday afternoons and drink beer or bourbon or whatever and get the Cocker Spaniel drunk and all that sort of stuff. And it was fun, you know, it was just a neat deal. And I had no idea there was anything wrong with the way we were living and just the way all the guys that I hung around with did. And uh, when I got out of Loyola High School, I went over to Santa Monica City College and I screwed around there for a few months. And if the truth were known, which I certainly want to tell the truth, but I was qualified to be an alcoholic when I was uh, in high school and when I was 19 years old. I was, I'd come into uh, zoology class at uh, Santa Monica City College, uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, usually late. And this one particular day, the professor stopped his lecture and he said, Behold, the ghost who walks. That's what I kind of looked like. I was either drunk or hungover or something. And... Uh, and I was dating this girl that was getting a little too hot and heavy, and uh, I was, I just wanted to get out of town. I was too unsophisticated to understand the term geographic, but that's what it was. And so I volunteered to be drafted in 1953, and I went in the Army right away, and I went overseas immediately. I went to Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kentucky, which is overseas if you're a native Californian, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and about a year later, <clears throat> This gal comes down to visit me, and she said, well, now that I'm here, won't we get married? And I thought, well, okay, you know, big, strong Tom, you know, we went off and got married and signed a suicide pact for the next 22 years, and it was just, you know. And I got out of the Army in 56, and not only was I married to her, but I had these two babies, and uh, one getting born, one a year old, and I felt like my life was over. I was barely 22 years old, and I was screwed, and it was just the way it was. But I had enough sense. I animated that I was raised very well uh, by my mom and dad. My father was an electrical contractor in the West Los Angeles area, and I went back to work for him and ultimately took over the business. That's what I do today. And I, uh, I had some idea that drinking during the day, which is something I've been doing now for the last several years, uh, somehow didn't figure into this stereotypical idea of how I should behave. I was a husband and a father and uh, a manager of my father's business, and drinking during the day somehow didn't fit in, so I decided not to drink during the day at least. I mean, you can drink on weekends, that's perfectly all right, you know, you get, wash the car, cut the lawn, have a few drinks, take a nap, you know, it's a good weekend, but uh, during the day I wasn't going to drink. And I didn't understand there was a potential problem there, and what happened is that I found myself during the first that first year getting very nervous and uptight and anxious about uh, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and just, I don't know what's wrong with me, I'm just nervous and uh, maybe just high-strung like I was diagnosed as being in grammar school. And uh, 
I'd have a couple of beers for lunch once in a while. And when I had the beer for lunch, it made me feel better in the afternoon. And uh, so I started doing that once in a while. Then it was an everyday occurrence. And I found that drinking beer in the middle of the day made me sleepy. And so I started having a couple of vodka tonics for lunch. I'll make them a double, if you will. I'd be doing that, and, um, you know, I felt better. And I couldn't tell anybody about it. It's going to be my little secret. My father had a little or no use for people that drank. My wife couldn't understand anybody drinking during the day. It was going to be my little... Uh, something I could just do by myself. And uh, I'd buy a quart of uh, bourbon or scotch on a Friday night, be my legal bottle, and put it on the kitchen sink and drink out of it ostensibly for the week. And in a couple of days, my wife would look and say to me, what did you do with that bottle you just bought the other night? I said, well, I know what happened to it. Maybe you got a drink out of it. I don't know, you know. And then she started asking these stupid questions. And so I started buying two quarts on a Friday night. You put one in the kitchen sink, one hide in the garage, and uh, work bottle A into bottle B and watch the line go up and down and work, work it out fine. She asked me questions like, what are you taking in the car with you for? Why don't you wait till you get to the party or the restaurant? Why do you drink before dinner and during dinner and after dinner? I don't know. It's there. It's like Mount Everest. You know, what are you going to do? I don't see what the big deal is. And these questions that people ask you are so inane. I mean, there's really no answer to them, but I mean, you just go along with the deal and... Uh, so I went on this way for a number of years, and uh, the marriage, of course, was suffering. The kids were having a tough time, but uh, I was drinking maybe, uh, oh, maybe uh, a pint to a quart a day, and then in my later couple of years, it took two quarts a day just to stay even. I wasn't getting drunk particularly. I was just somehow maintaining this miserable existence of putting one foot in front of the other and just somehow muddling through and hoping that people would just kind of leave me alone. And... Uh, I don't know, a few years after this, I started coming in out of blackouts. I don't mean the kind of blackouts where you wake up in the morning wondering what you did last night. Christ, half the stuff that you forget isn't even worth remembering. But I'm talking about waking up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, driving down Wilshire Boulevard, and you come to, and you think, have I had lunch? What did I do this morning? You know, it was very upsetting. And uh, so what I would do, I would... Uh, I started seeking the help of psychiatrists, something we all used to do in the late 50s and early 60s, and I had a, found a pretty good doctor I had a pretty good rapport with. And I told him about my highs and my lows and my problems with my, uh, my wife and kids and the childhood and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he would ask me periodically, how much do you drink, Tom? And, of course, I told him six or eight ounces of alcohol a day, doctor. It seemed like a, a normal amount for a heavy drinker to drink. I'm more than happy to be a heavy drinker because it is, after all, a sign of manhood or adulthood. For me to control and enjoy my drinking is my great obsession. I don't quite understand when I was controlling it, I wasn't enjoying it. And when I was enjoying it, I certainly wasn't controlling it. But I couldn't see any of that in those days. And all I wanted to do was have people get off my goddamn case and leave me alone and let me go to work and take the kids to Indian guides and the movies and the beach as long as I had booze to drink. And just leave me alone. I'm not bothering anybody. And uh, <clears throat> I'm just going along this way. And it was just a, a terrible, terrible period of my, of, my, uh, of my life. But I was seeing this doctor about three or four times a week, in and out of private therapy and group therapies and all therapies you can dream up. And what was happening, because I couldn't be honest with this doctor about my real problem, which is my alcoholism, I get sicker and sicker and sicker in this guy's care. But when you're in therapy or when you're in some sort of recovery, or some sort of self-help or whatever the hell it is, people have a tendency to get off your case and leave you alone and, you know, think, well, he's trying or whatever. And I guess I felt that way about myself. And I'd come out of the little club in Beverly Hills right around the corner of my psychiatrist's office. 
I hadn't had a drink since noon, and I go in there. I'm a little shaky, a little uptight. Go in there and have three or four double scotches or bourbons, whatever I was drinking, and get myself together. You know, you feel much better after you've had several drinks. You certainly look better. You can look in the back bar mirror and see that, and you can relate better with people. And I went and sat in the psychiatrist's office this particular Thursday afternoon. About 10 minutes into the session, he looked at me and he said, you know, you're drunk. I said, what do you, what do you mean I'm drunk? He said, you look drunk, you act drunk, and you smell drunk. I assume you're drunk. I said, well, a couple of beers for lunch, which I think is our stock answer. And he says, I think it's a little bit more than that, a little bit more recent, and was going to help me with my drinking problem, albeit my non-existent drinking problem. But I'll go on with the gag, whatever. And he put me in heavy dose of Librium and heavy dose of Stelazine. And if I'd been like I thought I was, just a little mildly neurotic, I'll take the pills he prescribed. And that's what I did. Hell, I took them more than prescribed. I want to get well now. <laughs> went away around a month. And I went to see him a week later. And I said to him, I feel better this week than I have felt in a long time. I have a certain inner peace that seems to permeate my life certain tranquility on the job, certain friendliness at home, as a matter of fact. He said, that's amazing. Not this soon do people get this immediate result in tranquilizing drugs. I said, well, I guess I'm very fortunate. I said, incidentally, I need another prescription. <laughs> he said, you couldn't possibly. I gave you a month's supply. I said, well, I, don't know. I must have lost them somewhere. I don't know what happened to them. So he wrote out another prescription. I'd had his too now, and I had some for some other doctors. You know, I may be alcoholic, but I'm not stupid. You know, you just go to a bunch of doctors and you give them a myriad of symptoms, and they'll either give you the right drugs or the wrong drugs. It's really a no-brainer, and you knew people can take it with you tonight, this, this morning, actually. So anyway, I was taking, of course, he did tell me not to drink with these things, but what do they know? And so I'm drinking these pills. I had my one pocket full of wire nuts and pills, and I'm popping these things, and it was just goofy. And I don't know what the hell I did to some of the customers I was working for, but it was kind of a funny period of my life, I'll tell you that. Come down Wilshire Boulevard, get to a little silly corner like Wilshire and Westwood about 10 o'clock in the morning, wait for the signal to change, take about an hour and a half, and I'd come to... And the woman in front of me claims I ran into her, which I suppose I could have. I don't remember that. But uh, come home some nights, rip that house apart, terrorize that wife and family some nights. Come home just as peaceful as I am this morning, even more peaceful. Come home 6, 7 o'clock at night, lay down the living room rug, take a little nap before dinner time, you know. Sometimes I'd miss dinner, but there's other meals. And... Uh, I'd get up at 11, 12 o'clock at night, go take a leak in the linen closet and go to bed, just as you're even home. My wife, was, my, my wife was losing her sense of humor over a lot of this kind of stuff, which they'll do. So she files for divorce again, but not to worry. She's always filing for divorce. I'm always moving out, moving back in again, trying to recapture what never was. It's just got to be silly. This time I got myself a one-room place right behind my favorite drinking bar called the Cork and Fork on Westwood Boulevard. <laughs> And I had sort of a routine. I'd get up at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, sit in the edge of my wet bed from perspiration or what have you, <laughs> go to the linen closet, pour a long, tall drink of vodka, have another one, another one, another one. 8 o'clock in the morning came, and I had a half a pint or a pint in my stomach, and I could uh, you know, go off and go to work, put the murine in the eyes, put the dark glasses on so my customers could look in there and see there was nobody home. And, you know, some uh, breath purifiers and some cologne, and see if I could pass for another couple hours. And that's where my life was in uh, 1965. My wife came to visit me in October of 65. She says, you want to see me while I wasn't drinking? So home, my vodka break about, I guess, 10 that morning. 
told me what kind of a husband I was, what kind of a father I was, what kind of a son I was to my mother and dad. And what was I going to do about Christmas is coming up and the kids needed toys and uh, shoes and clothes and the attorney wants to be paid and they uh, turn the gas off again, they're going to turn the phone off. What are you going to do about this and that? And I don't know what she's telling me, all these mundane problems. I mean, I got up for my own problems without these things. But anyway, anyway, mercifully she left in about 20 minutes and I just sort of flipped out. I went temporarily insane. I just went goofy. I was laughing maniacally and crying and I was just crazy. I went out to that little room and I went out. I think I went out and tried to do a job. I don't remember and I couldn't concentrate on anything and I was crying and shaking and I just went back to my little room and fortunately for me, the night before, I just purchased a big bottle of second all sleeping pills of which I got a hundred of them and I took all of those and a bunch of scotch and I just checked out and it's the understandable thing to do because you get to a point with your alcoholism and your drug addiction, well, you really can't do it anymore. I know we joke in here and talk about this time, it'll be different and I can handle it now, but I got to really know that it wasn't going to be any different. And please don't sit back there and tell me that I should quit drinking. I mean, what has that got to do with anything? I mean, alcohol is the only thing that I can put in my system that makes this miserable life at least tenable. At least I can walk. At least I can talk. I stutter and stammer if I don't have fresh alcohol in my system. But when I'm drinking, I can talk fine. And you talk about don't drink and drive. How the hell do you drive if you don't drink? You know, I mean, it was just, and I'm doing electrical work, you know, working on hot wires. And if you're shaking apart, you blow everything up. So you got to be relaxed. I guess maybe I only drank to relax. I do admit that sometimes I got so relaxed I couldn't move, but uh, that's what, uh, what, <laughs> what it was. So I knew that there was no way out, and I could not go another day the way I'd been living, and so I just checked out. And the kid that was working for me part-time thought I was acting a little bizarrely, and he came to an apartment found me in this coma, and they got the door open somehow. And they called the ambulance and they shipped me up to UCLA Medical Center where they pumped me full of holes and I was to stay in there for about uh, 13 hours. And, and I came to in this funny looking green room and I thought, Christ, I've even screwed this up. I can't even get out of here. Talk about bad breaks. And uh, I guess they pumped my stomach and I don't know. I don't know what they did. I was, wasn't there. And when my vital signs came around, they put me in another ambulance and they shipped me off to a mental institution which is where they put people like us in those days. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, you know, they have all kinds of new facilities now, but that's where they put people like us. And it wasn't all that bad, really. I had a 24-hour guard on me. I guess they were afraid I was going to do something bad. And uh, I was in this place, and it was because I could read my books and I could uh, listen to music. Nobody could call me. Nobody could visit me. And I had plenty of Thorazine to keep me very tranquil. So I was all right in there, but I can't be in a place like that because I have to pretend like I'm all right, like I'm really okay. And so I got out of the mental institution, and the first place I stopped was Jerry's Liquor Store in Olympic. And I bought a quart of vodka and a quart of scotch, and I went back to my little room. You see, I can't go in my little room naked because I have nothing to drink. I drank it all up. So I've got to have a quart of each, but I'm drunk every day. It didn't make any difference. And I went to work on Monday morning, and I got on the fourth rung of the ladder to change some light bulbs which is not overly technical. And uh, I uh, couldn't do it. I was shaking too badly. I didn't have enough to drink that morning. And I was on the corner of Foothill and Sunset in Beverly Hills. And everybody was going to work. And they were all pointing at that crazy man up on that ladder, you know, that crazy man who just got out of the mental institution. I was so paranoid and so sick. And I told, I said, Mrs. Pauly, I'll come back another day. Uh, 
whatever. And I checked in with another psychiatrist, this one five days a week. And if you're wondering how I'm affording a psychiatrist five days a week, I'm not. My daddy's taking care of me. I'm only 32 years old. I can't take care of myself or raise my kids or uh, take care of my mortgage and all the other stuff that was going on in life or whatever any other 32-year-old so-called responsible man would be doing. And I just felt like, you know, my father looked at me almost every morning and he said, I, I wonder how many more years I'm going to have to continue to bail you out, Tom. And I felt like such a little boy, like such a failure. And I thought, anyway, I went on that way. I spent a miserable Christmas and uh, holiday season. It was this time of year, as I'm talking about. And I didn't want to be with the family because, you know, they all knew about the suicide and I just wanted to be by myself. Not for the classic reasons I could drink the way I wanted to drink, but I just wanted to be by myself. And I went to Mass on Christmas of 1965, and I got on my knees at the back of that church, and I asked God to grant me some peace. I don't want to quit drinking because it wasn't an issue, but I wanted to sleep for more than two hours at a time. If you drink the way I drink, getting to sleep is not a major problem because you drink all through the day and the evening, and by 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you're passed out, which is a, a gift from God as far as I'm concerned. But I would pass out, and then I would wake up in two or three hours just as wide awake as I am this morning. And I couldn't get back to sleep unless I paced that room back and forth and back and forth and drank some more and drank some more and walked some more and drank some more so I could wear myself out and pass out again so I could sleep for another two or three hours. That's where my life had been reduced to in 1965. And I just uh, didn't understand what was going on. And two days later, my prayer was answered. Although I didn't see it as such, but I woke up one particular morning. Nothing new had happened in my life. I went to... It was got up to go to work and I uh, went to my linen closet and poured my morning drink and had another one, another one, another one. Eight o'clock in the morning came and I went and put the bottle of vodka back on the top shelf and I noticed a bottle of Ballantine scotch had about that much left and I thought, Christ, that's a lot of scotch this eight o'clock the night before. It was remarkable how much I was drinking yet it was no more or no less that I was drinking all the way along but it was kind of like shown to me. And I went to the phone a few hours later and I, I called Alcoholics Anonymous of all places and I went to a meeting that night at Ohio Street in West Los Angeles. And I sat in the back of the room where you're supposed to sit when you're new. Don't get too close and don't pick up any coffee cups in those meetings. I'll think you're a member. And I sat back there in my hands. I was afraid someone was going to see me shaking. And I was sort of purple in color. And I sweating profusely on this cold January uh, night. I had green slime coming out of my mouth from the breath purifiers I was chewing so nobody knew I was drinking. And some jerk who I was sitting next to raised my hand as a newcomer which I don't think was very nice. I don't know, and I still don't know how the hell I knew I was a newcomer because I still didn't tell him, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that was the night I walked up to a man who was going to be my sponsor. And I uh, walked over to him and I said, excuse me, sir, you seem to be some sort of a big deal around here. How do you join Alcoholics Anonymous? How do you become a, mem a member? And he said, you don't drink, kid. And I said, yes, I'm planning on cutting down. And he said, no, you really don't have a grasp right problem. We don't drink here a day at a time. I said, it's very easy for you to say, apparently you're sober sometime, but I can't go a whole day without a drink. I tried it one day in July, and it damn near killed me. <laughs> he got some <laughs> funny, he was laughing. He got some of the guys he sponsored and some of his friends around, maybe repeat what I just said so they can get a big laugh out of it, too. But it's kind of true. If you can't exploit and make fun of the new people, what good are they? And so I went back to my, <laughs> I went back to my psychiatrist talking about these insane AA meetings and these crazy people and these bizarre stories. And he said, you know, he said, not to worry. He reached in his drawer and he pulled a whole big bag of Librium and said, here, take these. They'll get you the rust spots. I thought, great, no problem. I made the mistake, though, of sharing this with my soon-to-be sponsor. 
And he informed me if I was going to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous as opposed to one that just didn't drink, but if you're going to be sober and be in a position to work this program, we don't drink here in Alcoholics Anonymous a day at a time. We don't take pills that affects the neck up. We don't smoke marijuana. We don't shoot non-habit-forming heroin. I guess, I guess if you came in today, they'd tell you to cut back a little bit at least on your cocaine and crack. But to be sober is to be sober is to be sober. It's hard to get that concept. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I don't understand this thing. And uh, I told him, I said, I can't even get out of my room in the morning unless I take a, a tall glass, put about four or five fingers of vodka in there, put a little orange juice in there, make kind of a health drink out of it, and you drink it down, hope it'll work, you know, when you wait a couple of minutes, it doesn't take effect too fast. So I another little shot, and before I know it, I'm drunk again just like yesterday, like any other day. And I uh, couldn't get out of my room in the morning. And this man convinced me that I could get out of my room quite well, yes, and get in my car and drive down to Santa Monica Beach on this cold January day. And I walked up and down that beach, shaking and sweating, and never nerve ending my body calling out to give me some booze, give me something. And I walked and walked and walked and shook. And I drank Carol syrup, which I'd heard about in those A&A meetings. And I drank Cokes and I ate Hershey bars and I drank coffee. I probably should have died of a diabetic coma, but somehow <laughs> I didn't take a drink all that morning. Oh, that afternoon, I went to the meeting that night, and I was sitting in that meeting, and I realized it was the longest time I'd been without a drink since I was a junior in high school. I thought, how amazing, how miraculous. And uh, I, it's hard to believe, but uh, this coming January, uh, January 6th, I'll have a cake with 35, 36 candles on it. You can't stay drunk that time. No, no, oh, cuts into my time. Don't, uh, don't applaud. Anyway, I... Uh, <laughs> It was just, just amazing, and I've done little else and just come to Alcoholics Anonymous and get this man as a sponsor and just start to, on this journey. And it was uh, very strange, I mean, this whole change around. My wife and I reconciled shortly after coming to the program. I have very little memory of that first year or two than just getting up in the morning and going to work, coming home and getting cleaned up, getting something to eat, go down and help set the hall up, which I'm sure all of us do here at our meetings. I stay for the meeting, break the meeting down, go sit in those stupid coffee shops all night long, go home and sleep real fast and do it all over again. That's pretty much the way I spent the first uh, year or two in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and maybe to the detriment of my family. I don't know. These uh, kids were, uh, you know, just uh, eight and seven, I think, something like that. At least they had a sober daddy. At least they knew where I was, and uh, that's what it was like. And my, we had a certain amount of a honeymoon, I guess, in those first few months. Uh, I was sober, I guess, about eight or nine months, and I'd gone to a Friday night meeting, just a fine meeting, good speaker, I'm sure, and uh, I left that meeting just as crazy as I had ever been or been since. I was just gone. I left, went out and sat in my car, and I was laughing maniacally, and I was crying, and I couldn't imagine what was wrong with me, and I went down to Santa Monica Beach again on this full moon light, a full moon, probably that was wrong with me. <laughs> And I was walking around down trying to sort it all out, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I went to my sponsor's house quite late that night, got him out of bed, as a matter of fact. Came to the front door and wanted to know why I was parked on his front lawn. I said, I haven't got time to park the car. i got to talk to you. i got to talk to you now. Anyway, I went and parked the car in the street with the rest of the cars. And I came back in, and we sat around the coffee table trying to find out what was uh, wrong. And I'd gone to see him that night because uh, I sponsor probably too many people in uh, the area I live in, just a lot of guys, maybe, I don't know, a bunch of them. And we sponsors, and he, of course, were full of magic sentences. 
that's what we have them for, you know, and you can call them, you know, with these terrible problems or whatever, and he'll reel off one of these magic sentences, and everything is wonderful for about 20 minutes. And uh, this particular night, he was out of magic sentences, and he listened to me, and he just suggested that it was time for me to go home and start a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself, which is a fourth step. And I didn't see how it applied to me. So much of my life in the Catholic system of examination of conscience and confession, if that's not a fourth and fifth step, what is? Years that I spent in psychiatrist offices talking about what I used to be like, what happened, what I'm like now. And he cursed me and embarrassed me and against my better judgment, I had to go home and start this uh, fourth step. And I was able to put in that fourth step things I was never able to tell a Catholic priest in confession because they were too tacky, too embarrassing, too sinful of evil, things that I couldn't tell a psychiatrist. You can't tell them that kind of stuff. They'll think you're crazy. <laughs> so you've got to be very guarded what you tell people in that venue. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start and put all that crap down. Put those secrets down. Put your goals down. Find out who the hell you're dealing with. So much of my life was spent in movies and books and plays and Radio, I suppose, in those days. They still have radio. Anyway, uh, it was playing Let's Pretend. Never satisfied who I was. Always wanted to be someplace else with somebody else, doing something. Never having a handle on who I was. And it wasn't until after I got on this journey of Alcoholics Anonymous, of uncover, discover, and discard, which we do, and uh, that uh, I had some semblance of who I was. And there was a lot of good uh, stuff in my inventory that was worth holding on to, and a lot of stuff had to go. And I, I was about perfect in about 30 days, and I don't think that's really very true. It took me many years. I guess, I suppose, in my second, end of my first year, I was about as perfect as I've ever been, you know, because you're really right in the meat of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then life sets in, and then you go back and doing a lot of junk that made you bad in the first place. But uh, I uh, got through that first year, and... Uh, I don't know, after I took my fifth step with this man, I, I felt more like a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. When they would read uh, chapter 5, and they'd say, these are the steps we took, I said, yeah, me too. I'm a full-fledged member like that. And uh, I went on this way uh, for the next several years, uh, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous, doing whatever I was asked to do, and everything was fine. I was sober about almost eight years, <clears throat> and I looked around at these two little towhead little boys had grown up and they were in, getting in and out of high school and I thought what is going on here they were both stoned out of their minds selling drugs out the back door you couldn't walk in the living room without getting contact high <clears throat> and I thought what is this you know and uh, it was very upsetting to me my wife at the time was going along with what the kids were doing and in fact my youngest son he said that our family gave a whole new meaning to dysfunctional <laughs> whatever that means Anyway, that's when my wife uh, filed for divorce in uh, January of, uh, of uh, 74, and that's when I moved down to uh, Dana Point, where I live near now. And as I was driving down the freeway, I was thinking, am I doing my will or his will? You know, when you're around here a while, you don't want to screw this thing up. You want to do it correctly. And so I said a prayer that my sponsor gave me, and I'll share it with you. It goes like this. God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me, and I cannot know for certain where it'll end, nor do I know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe this. I believe the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in everything I do, and I hope I never do anything apart from that desire. And I know if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it at the time, and I may seem to be lost in the very shadow of death. I'll not be afraid. 
because I know you will never leave me to face my troubles all alone. And with this, I continued on down the freeway, and of course, I immediately told him the kind of apartment I wanted. I want the business to be run. Of course, you know, you don't do this stuff. You just practice it. And uh, somehow, I just, you know, got down there in my business. It was difficult. I tell this phase of my talk and maybe... Uh, 10 seconds, but you know, starting a business in a, as far as I was concerned, it was the next county down, but it was like a foreign land to me, and I had to drive back and forth to Los Angeles and work three days in one place and hope the phone would ring, and it was just a, a very, very difficult, stressful time for me, and going through the divorce, and uh, it was very tough, but I, one day upon another, I put it together, and uh, with God's help, I was able to survive it. And the business went along pretty well. I have a pretty little business in South Orange County now. But uh, uh started to date again, which is a little awkward when you're, I was in my early 40s and uh, it was, I wasn't too good at it in high school. But I met this girl and we uh, started to go together. It was a little too hot and heavy and too crazy and I broke it off and, uh, and uh, after about, I guess it was about, four or five, six months, and then when she called me to go out for our natal birthdays, which is, they're right together, the 19th and 20th of August, and she was going to take me out for dinner, and I thought, well, a free meal, can it hurt? So, uh, we, uh, went to dinner, and of course we started up again, and we, uh, had a rather nice relationship, and when she was in South Coast Hospital in South Laguna, uh, having a radical mastectomy in 1977 in January, uh, I went to visit her and I said, you know, where are you going to move to? And she said, well, I really don't want to go here or there. Why don't you come home with me, I told her, and uh, I'll take care of you until you uh, uh, start to feel better. And so she did, and of course the relationship was uh, intensified and we were ultimately married and uh, we had a good relationship. I mean, I guess other than the cancer, you know, which is an ongoing problem, to uh, have in your life, but I think the real problem was my two drug addict, alcoholic children and her three daughters and a son who are not much better condition than my kids are in. Of course, they love to come over to visit us in their various stages of stoneness. <clears throat> I mean, my kids, <clears throat> my kids had a lot of emotional problems, I guess, being raised in our, at the home. I think her kids were just scuzzy drug addicts, as far as I'm concerned, but we got through all that very well, and they're all sober now, those that are still alive. And uh, <clears throat> they called me from General Hospital about 22, 23 years ago. I don't know, I should really write all this stuff down, I get the dates all screwed up, but about 23 years ago, my youngest son falling out of a second-story window, stone on angel dust and some cheap wine. And I went to visit him. I said, Jim, this isn't much to shoot for. Why don't you guys, a scuzzy city, and come on down to Dana Point and get yourself an apartment. You come to work for me, you know. And, oh, no, Dad, I'm having too good a time. So anyway, he, he stayed up there. And he did come down, and he did come to work for me, and he got himself a place to live. And uh, he stayed sober in front of me because he knew I wouldn't tolerate having anybody working in my business that was uh, loaded. So he got picked up one Saturday night for drunk walking, and uh, when he got out of the Santa Ana jail, they, uh, he, he realized he had to quit drinking. And you know what? He did it all on his own, with no program, no nothing. He cut it right off, never to have another drink. He did it all on quaaludes and marijuana, which is another whole program. 
It's one you were on for a while, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I look around this room this morning and a lot of, uh, a lot of wonderful old memories of a lot of people that I've known over the years. Anyway, uh, we were having, I was having lunch with, uh, my son Jim and, uh, and Clint Hodges. We were having lunch in, uh, Tustin, I think, and, uh, we said, you know, why don't you come to the meeting tonight? Uh, the Wednesday night uh, speaker meeting in Laguna Beach is one of my home groups. And, uh, uh, and Clint said, yes, Norm Alpey is our speaker tonight. He was our best speaker in those days. And uh, Jim came to the meeting strictly for the entertainment value uh, because he was a wonderful speaker. He came to the meeting and loved it and stood up as a newcomer. And he's been sober, uh, well, 21 years last uh, last. Uh, 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 it cuts into my time. Don't do that. John's over there. We're like going like this. Anyway, uh, so I'm very proud of him and my uh, oldest boy. <laughs> he's got, he'll have 19 years uh, the first day of December. If I can remember his birthday, I usually forget it. My oldest boy is uh, 46. I don't know how that happened. I was married when I was four years old. I think that's how that how that worked out. I don't know too well. Anyway, I'm very proud of my sons. They're both doing very very well. Uh, my uh, right after we were married, my uh, first wife, the mother of the boys, she was. I didn't realize when I was living in that marriage that she was a manic depressive schizophrenic, bipolar, whatever they call it in those days. And she was very strange. She called me at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning with the helicopters flying low over and the television. This, it was just really a very scary time uh, to go through, especially for her. And uh, one particular afternoon, somehow she got hold of a 38 and she shot herself in the backyard of our home, and uh, her home then. And it was, uh, I had about like a nine-hour surgery, and she... Survived that. She has kind of a, a life up in Los Angeles. I uh, I hear from her from the uh, my two sons, of course, all the time. And she's doing all right. And she's but I've always kind of feel badly. You know, I've made my amends and I've done all that I can do in those early days after the divorce to make things as well as I could. But you know, sometimes you don't have people waiting in the wings after you've made your amends, telling you how wonderful you are. You know, but you, uh, I do feel sad that she couldn't have a a decent program and a decent life like we can. We have an Alcoholics Anonymous, but that's uh, another deal, I guess. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, my uh, youngest uh, son, uh, Jimmy, when he came and told me he was a homosexual, it just destroyed me. I thought, how can this be? It was something I did or didn't do or should have done? Or, well, it is about me, isn't it? <laughs> and I just—it uh, was hard to uh, adjust with that. But uh, through all the years and the conversations and we're fast friends right now I know I was a little out of source I guess about eight or nine years ago I said Jim I said it doesn't look like I'm ever going to become a grandfather he says well we're trying so you know you <laughs> so you do all that whole thing you know but uh, my uh, oldest boy made me a grandfather a couple of times I have a, a seven-year-old grandson and a, almost a, uh, a, a year-and-a-half-year-old grandson. They're just wonderful. I'm looking forward to Christmas again this year, and it's just, it's just a neat deal. And these two grandsons have, uh, have sober parents, which is a, a wonderful thing. It's just a bigger chance, a better chance than uh, I ever gave my kids, I'm, I'm sure. I, uh, 
my wife passed away the day after Christmas of 1985. And uh, if you've been with anybody that suffered from cancer, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know, you really don't want to know. She had about seven surgeries and uh, constant chemotherapy and uh, just I don't know how much radiation. And uh, anyway, she uh, passed away a day after Christmas, and I was just devastated when it was over with. I thought, how can this be? You know, because let me tell you something, to be quite frank with you, I, just, I turned it over. Well, she was in this illness, and I'd done a third step on this whole thing. And you know what happened? She died anyway, which is kind of a upsetting thing because it didn't come out the way I thought it was supposed to come out. And I'd done a third step. My God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, thy way of life. And that's what I had been doing and did. And after I got through, I said a terrible year of 1986. Talk about having a bad day. I had a bad year. But I got through that year because I just kept suiting up and showing up. I went to a lot of movies and long weekends and a few trips and stuff like that. And I got through it. It was not a very pleasant, because I couldn't, I just couldn't understand how this could happen. And of course, after you have the experience, it uh, turns out that it's easier for me to do a third step. I tell the guys that I sponsor it's easier for me sometimes because I see the futility of trying to plot and plan what God's will is. And I just uh, suit up and show up and do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it. Something else I tell the guys I sponsor. Do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. And if you don't know what that is, that's why you have sponsors that can... Uh, share with you and guide you along in that whole thing like that. And those people that are new in this room, you don't have to do this thing alone. In fact, if you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong because it's a we thing. We get together and do this whole thing. You, know, you trust God, clean house, help others. It's what we little cliche we have. Trust God, clean house, help others. I was at a meeting Monday night and there was this young fellow there who had about, I guess he had about five months and he was so angry and so upset, just off the chart. And it was interesting. I talked to him after the meeting. And I told him, I said, you know, you're probably where you're supposed to be. And it's understandable that you're angry or whatever. But the nice thing about the program, and I sponsored another guy who called me and the day after who was also very angry. He has about two and a half years on the program. And I said, it's interesting about us alcoholics is that we're so much into ourselves and our relationships and our work and our life and all this sort of stuff and we just can't seem to see anything else and the, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's a program of what can I do for you how can I help you and getting out of ourselves and doing for other people and I've known this intellectually uh, for most of my sobriety because it's talked about at so many of our meetings but I've begun to realize that I've been living it uh, the last few years and my life is infinitely better I've tried to stay out of my own life I try to stay out I get worried about you know I'm getting old and I don't know how much longer I can work and what's going to happen here will this be and you just make, your cra make yourself crazy and all I can do every day is to get up in the morning and, uh, and go to work and uh, talk to the other alcoholics that I, uh, I work with and go to meetings and just kind of share my my love and my experience with people. It's uh, kind of a deal. I I was noticing recently I got two invitations uh, to, for two guys that I sponsor are getting married in the next few months and reminded me about, I guess it was about seven years ago, 
a couple of guys got married. One came out of the uh, Monday night step-study meeting. He said, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I'm getting married. I said, oh, I didn't even know you were dating. He said, oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I said, who is it? He pointed out who it was, and I thought, well, wouldn't see the girl that just stood up as a newcomer tonight? And he, I see, he said, yeah, yeah, we got all that worked out. I said, yeah, I bet you do. So they got married. Marriage lasted about 22 minutes and uh, enough time for her to get pregnant, of course, so they can have a child they can fight over for the next uh, 18 years. It was just a sad, sad story. Another guy who should have known better, had about 15 years on the program, he called me and said he's getting married and was very disappointed when I was not all overjoyed as he was. And I said, you're not marrying so-and-so, are you? And he said, yes, well, of course. I said, well, you've only known her for three months, and you haven't even gotten along with her. He said, well, we worked all that out. I'm sure I'm, but you did, you know, I'm fine. She had one little tiny problem. I got a couple of minutes, I'll share it. Just a little, hardly even worth mentioning, a little tiny jealousy problem. She didn't want him going to those uh, A&A meetings where they have women, and you know how you are. And, uh, and, uh, So she drove him on, <clears throat> on Tuesday night to his men's stag meeting and, of course, picked him up. That marriage was made in hell as far as I was concerned. It lasted a very short time. And I got so turned off on people getting married in Alcoholics Anonymous that I guess I'd rather go to an AA funeral where there's some hope. But I... Uh, but <laughs> I see so many other... So many other uh, good relationships and marriages and things like that uh, that I uh, look forward to. I have a, uh, I was, after my wife had passed away in 19, I guess it was 1987, I was sitting at my Wednesday night, one of my home groups, and I saw this beautiful blonde lady uh, get her fifth cake. And I thought, now there is a classy looking lady. And I called her sponsor to see if we'd be all right if we went out on a date. She said it would be a good idea. So we went on a one date, and we've been together ever since. Uh, we'll be married 14 years next uh, March, and uh, it's a, uh, you're plotting, don't do that. And uh, uh, we have a wonderful marriage. We have a lot of love in our home, and she'll have a lovely garden. She's home right now uh, uh, decorating the house for Christmas. She was glad I was going to be, <laughs> be underfoot. I stay uh, that weekend, she's decorating the house. I get a bow put on me if I'm not too careful. <laughs> Anyway, it's uh, really quite a wonderful life. I miss her this weekend, but it's, uh, she's having a good time. Uh, and we have a good life. Uh, she had a son, uh, Derek, who, uh, uh, when we were just starting to go together, uh, he was high into his uh, cocaine and alcoholism uh, experience. And uh, he came to his mother and he said, uh, Mom, i got to have $5,000 or I'm gonna, they're going to kill me. The... Uh, he was a student at UCLA, and he, they were going to kill him. And uh, her friends and her people in Alcoholics Anonymous told her to uh, to uh, not do anything, not to uh, help him out. And she had lost a lot in her alcoholism. She had uh, lost the the custody of her two children and uh, went all the way down the drain. And uh, she's, uh, well, next uh, April she'll have... Uh, uh, 20 years on the program, but in those days it was uh, touch and go. We were starting to go together, and Derek was doing all this kind of stuff. So Derek 
somehow got a hold of a few hundred dollars and flew to Miami, which I guess he figured he'd be safe from cocaine there. <laughs> and he had a terrible time there and almost died a couple of times, almost was killed. And, uh, but somehow he came back and found himself in Gainesville, Florida, and got himself uh, in a 12-step house and came back to California and stood up for us when we uh, got married. And uh, he stayed sober almost 10 years. They moved up to uh, Santa Maria, which is a small community uh, north of Santa Barbara. Started a business up there, raised a couple of babies. And you know, it's kind of true when you've got uh, business to run and uh, family and the whole bit where you're going to five meetings a week, down to three, down to one, down to none. And he got funny and started seeing a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist put him on the medication, and before you know it, he was back making his calls to the crack dealer, and he was back using drugs and drinking again. It broke his mother's heart. But fortunately, he's sober, I think, about, uh, about uh, three and a half years now, so I'm very proud of him, and I hope he sticks around. You know, it's interesting that I got out of that particular experience is that everybody in this room that be alcoholic knows that we're going to be sober forever. I mean, that's a, it's a given. What are you doing in Las Vegas if you're in a conference, if you're not going to be sober? But it's not all that easy. Like I started talking at the beginning of this jury talk. You know, you just, it's a precious thing we have here. And uh, we have to keep ever vigilant and uh, keep helping other people and doing these steps and keep doing this whole thing that we can keep this stuff alive, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's been a wonderful life for me. I've just had a... Uh, a fabulous life, uh, a lot of sorrows, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of financial problems, and just everything you can name. But in the main thing is I've never stopped going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never stopped sharing. I've never stopped doing the stuff that was taught to me and was given to me so freely when I was a, uh, when I was a newcomer. And uh, I wish it upon you, and let's have a nice weekend. Thank you very much.